1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. After a dramatic day out of and back into office, Malaysia's Prime Minister is now in a caretaker role. The coalition he led has fallen out of favor with the public, but he may be the only politician who can patch the country's ethnic divides. And from sundown on Friday until nightfall on Saturday in Israel, good luck getting a bus. Public transport has been banned on the Sabbath since Israel's founding, but it may not stay that way, and it's become a curiously political question. First up, though, The World Health Organization has said that governments need to start planning for a coronavirus pandemic.
2: It is time to prepare. It is time to do everything you would do in preparing for a pandemic. But in declaring something a pandemic, it is too early.
1: Nearly 80,000 people in 37 countries have been infected. At least 2,600 have died. On financial markets yesterday, there were heavy losses as governments reported significant new cases of COVID-19 beyond China. The number of diagnoses there has slowed, but elsewhere there's been a surge, in particular in Italy, South Korea, and Iran. As the epidemic spreads, it's clear that different governments are taking very different approaches to reporting and managing it. Iran prompted considerable alarm after it reported a sudden increase in deaths caused by COVID-19.
3: I think there are two issues in Iran. Greg Carlstrom is our Middle East correspondent. The first uh, to do with confirming cases is that this is a country that has been under very heavy economic sanctions. Uh, those have made it increasingly difficult to obtain medicines, medical supplies, uh, including, according to businessmen in Iran, uh, the diagnostic kits that they would need to diagnose coronavirus. They've said it's, it's difficult to import those. The WHO has said it will provide Iran with some kits. You have domestic firms that are also rapidly trying to make their own. Uh, but this is just not a country in a position to diagnose, let alone uh, contain a pandemic. Uh, The economy is in free fall, The, the currency has lost much of its value over the past two years, so the government simply doesn't have many resources to throw at the problem. The other issue is this is not a government that is inclined to be transparent with its citizens, and there's a lot of skepticism amongst Iranians that the government is downplaying the scope of the problem. South Korea reported 231 infections yesterday, taking the total
1: there to more than 800. Eight people have died. Lena Schipper, our Korea's correspondent, said the government there has been much more open about the situation.
4: They're being very transparent about it. They've closed off a city, essentially, because the epicentre of the current outbreak is the city of Daegu, which is slightly south of Seoul, which has two and a half million people living in it. And um, the outbreak centred on this slightly strange religious cult where people pray together um, at very close quarters several times a week. And they've also been quite reticent about divulging their symptoms to the authorities. So it's only just come out. So the authorities have closed off Degu, essentially, and there's lots of controls on people going in and out. People have been recommended to um, stay at home. There's all these alerts that get sent to your phone when you're close to some to a place where there was a case, like tracking the movements of people who've been infected and um, warning people about you know, where
1: there's been an outbreak and where you should maybe be a bit more careful. In Italy, there have been more than 200 reported infections and at least seven deaths.
5: At the national level, uh, the government has banned all school trips. John
1: Hooper is The Economist's Italy correspondent.
5: It has declared these two um, areas to be, in effect, under quarantine. One of them is to the southeast of Milan. The other is to the southwest of Venice. And the lockdown there is pretty... Um, drastic. Uh, the police have been called in, in with reinforcements to man roadblocks in and out of the areas, and the government has said that people trying to leave will be fined. Um, as I discovered on Monday, uh, they've even diverted trains around these areas. One of the governors said on uh, Sunday, yes, uh, it is drastic, the measures that we're taking, but uh, we would rather uh, prevent than have to cure.
1: If the WHO does declare a pandemic, governments would then move from containing the virus to what's called the mitigation phase. The focus would be on flattening the curve that depicts new infections every day. The idea is to limit the burden on health systems.
4: So the strategies that uh, will be used—they're tried and tested with the seasonal influenza um, every single year.
1: Slaveja Chankova is the Economist's healthcare correspondent.
4: They might involve um, closing schools for a short period of time, uh, perhaps advising, um, you know, workplaces to have their employees work from home, especially if they feel sick, so that they don't spread the disease to others. Uh, it, they may involve cancelling big social gatherings, such as concerts, conferences, and so on. So all of these things are called social distancing measures because um, the virus is transmitted through close contact. So the more people (laughs) are distanced from each other, um, the less transmission you have.
1: But the more those become widespread and the more people uh, are are made aware that they need to distance themselves, doesn't that increase the, 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 the chances for panic?
4: Absolutely. And that's uh, the balance that governments uh, have to strike. So tell people, you know, this is a disease that you need to protect yourself from and particularly protect people who are vulnerable. We already know that with uh, COVID-19, those are elderly people with pre-existing other conditions such as cancer, diabetes, and so on. So, um, you know, telling people you have to protect yourself because if you get infected, you may pass this on to someone like this. Um, at the same time, obviously, um, governments have to be careful not to uh, make people too panicky. So, um, telling people that here are the things you could do, you could do something, this is preventable. All we are seeing now in the media with, you know, pictures, you know, from China, it looks like something, you know, deadly and dangerous and, you know, just looming your way and and, and all of that causes a level of panic that could be very counter counterproductive.
1: So one question that's been there from the start is the degree to which China's reaction to this was was the right thing to do, the extreme containment measures. Now we see the the, the, the numbers of new cases are, in fact, declining. What lessons should we take from what, what has happened in China?
4: So many countries are uh, taking a page of China's book and uh, thinking that, you know, quarantines, uh, isolating entire communities could help slow down the spread of the disease to the rest of the country. That's what we are seeing in Italy. We are seeing this in South Korea. Early studies from China show that this has had some effect um, in decreasing the spread of the disease. Uh, Some of the measures such as uh, cancelling public transport in some cities have uh, drastically reduced the number of cases in the first week. The question is whether these strategies could work In other countries, whether they will be socially acceptable, whether countries will uh, be willing to bear the economic costs of them for the amount of time that they might be able to buy them.
1: Slavea, thank you very much for coming in.
4: Thank you, Jason.
1: You can hear more about COVID-19 spreads on this week's episode of our sister science podcast, Babbage, out tomorrow. And we've got a look at all the ways the virus is shaping your world in the upcoming print issue and online. Subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or 12 pounds. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yesterday, Malaysia's 94-year-old Prime Minister Mahathir Mohammed announced his resignation. It plunged the reformist ruling coalition Pakatan Harapan into chaos after weeks of disquiet. The coalition swept to power two years ago.
0: We have, in fact, uh, achieved a very substantial majority, not just a few votes.
1: Ousting the United Malays National Organization, or UMNO, a party that had been in power for more than six decades. The Pakatan Harapan coalition campaigned on a host of reforms, in particular promising to soothe the divisions that define Malaysian politics, between ethnic Malays and indigenous groups and Chinese and Indian populations. Many of those promises, though, haven't been kept. For now, Dr. Mahathir has been reinstated as a caretaker prime minister. But it's entirely unclear who will end up in charge or exactly why he chose a dramatic exit.
0: There are two theories on why Dr. Mahathir might have resigned.
1: Miranda Johnson is our Southeast Asia correspondent.
0: The first involves a betrayal of sorts. Apparently, Dr. Mahathir quit because the 26 MPs from his party, along with 11 MPs from the governing coalition, Pakatan Harapan's largest party, decided that they no longer, in fact, wanted to be a part of that coalition. And that was a surprise and a disappointment to Dr. Mahathir, who wanted things to carry on as they were. The other theory is that actually Dr. Mahathir knew more than he was letting on all along. There were rumours for weeks of a plot underway to destabilize and perhaps overthrow the ruling coalition. Something went wrong, things got messy, and ultimately Dr. Mahathir decided to step down.
1: Either way, it sounds as if there is some disquiet then in Dr. Mahathir's party, Bersatu, and more broadly within the Pakatan Harapan coalition. Why is that? Why are things not as they should be?
0: It was always going to be difficult for this ruling coalition to work There are four parties, they each have competing interests. But what's peculiar about Malaysian politics is that racial considerations plague the country. And certain of the parties within the coalition supported rights for Malays and other Indigenous groups that make up about 69% of Malaysia's population. And two other parties... In the governing coalition, Pakatan Harapan actually either embraced multiculturalism or different ethnic groups, and squabbles over the kinds of policies that should be in place to support Malays and other indigenous groups cause tension.
1: But resolving those tensions is exactly how Pakatan Harapan got into power, right?
0: Yes. Although back when Pakatan Harapan was campaigning and trying to get into government, For one thing, nobody thought that this motley crew would manage to emerge victorious. And for another, there was a common enemy for the four parties. And that was UMNO, which is an incredibly potent political force in Malaysia. It's the party that ran the country for 61 years until Pakatan Harapan came in in 2018 So Pakatan Harapan came to power with promises of political reform, social reform, economic reform. They promised the earth in part because no one really expected that they would get in. When they did end up running the government, reality was less sparkly than their manifesto and reforms have been slow and the economy has stagnated.
1: And now things are in an even greater mess. What's going on with the coalition and indeed with Dr Mahathir?
0: So now what has happened is rather odd. Yesterday, Dr Mahathir said he was resigning as prime minister and he was stepping back from the chairmanship of his party. Later in the evening, the king asked him to be the interim prime minister so as to be able to preside over the formation of a new government. So the only fixed person, as different politicians vie to be in a new ruling coalition, is actually Dr. Mahathir himself, who will be in that coalition is very much under discussion. Trading is underway, deals are being made.
1: And so do you think this will just end up being kind of a reshuffle of the existing coalition partners, or will there be some push from the opposition to be a part of this? How do you think it will all settle out?
0: That, Jason, is absolutely the question that is on everybody's minds. Whether or not it's a reconfiguration of Pakatan Harapan, perhaps with the loss of Dr. Mahathir's party, Or perhaps there really will be a changing of the guard and we will see the return of UMNO, which for so long dominated politics in Malaysia, or even a third option, which could be a government of national unity. The scenario which seems somewhat more unlikely at this time is a snap election. Lawmakers aren't prepared for it. They don't have the resources ready to fight one. And so that does not appeal across the board.
1: And what would it mean then if UMNO, the former ruling party for so long, comes back to power? Is that kind of drawing a line under the very idea of the kind of reforms that Pakatan Harapan got into power on?
0: It would be very shocking if UMNO returned. Dr. Mahathir served as prime minister for more than two decades for Malaysia previously, and at that time he was the head of UMNO. He left the party and turned his back on it when subsequent UMNO administrations were bogged down in corruption, the 1MDB scandal, in which billions went missing from a Malaysian state investment vehicle, is what comes to mind here. So if Dr Mahathir were to preside over a coalition including UMNO it would be a reversal in some ways of his great exit from that party.
1: But what do you think the outcome could be that would resolve the tensions that dominate the country's politics, do you think?
0: It's very difficult to answer that question because of the racialized nature of certain of the political parties. What is clear is that Parties across the divide support Dr. Mahathir, and they want him to stay on as prime minister. So even in this confusing time, he appears to be a figure of consistency and a figure of unity.
1: Thank you very much for joining us, Miranda.
0: Thank you, Jason.
1: Until recently in Israel, catching a bus on the Sabbath was impossible. But public transport on the day of rest could become a political issue as Israel heads towards its third election in a year.
2: Jerusalem, Tel Aviv and any other of Israel's main cities, on the Sabbath, the day of the rest, is open. It's like any other place, uh, cars drive through most of the, most of the streets. Anshul Pfeffer is The Economist's Israel correspondent. But one crucial uh, element of, uh, of urban life, which is public transport, doesn't exist in Israel and hasn't existed in Israel for the last 72 years in any of the main cities and in between
1: them. So it's been this way since Israel was founded. Why is it that this was kind of a, a founding principle for the country?
2: So on the eve of Israel's establishment, David Ben-Gurion, who who Israel's founder and first prime minister, had a crucial meeting with uh, the main ultra-Orthodox rabbis who themselves were not Zionists and weren't, weren't very enthusiastic about the idea of a secular Jewish state coming into being. But ben Gurion needed their support. He wanted to show the international community that this was a project that all the Jews living in Palestine were in favor of. So he made a deal with them that the future state would be of a certain nature once it came into being. And one of the conditions that they demanded, and Ben-Gurion, who himself was a secular man, a secular Jew, accepted was that the the services in the state would not work from sundown on Friday evening till nightfall on Saturday night. In other words, during the 25 hours of what the Orthodox Jews regard as, as Shabbat, as a Sabbath, when... Work and anything, including driving a car, are, are prohibited by Jewish law. So as a result, private citizens were allowed to drive their cars, but public transport ceased from Friday evening until Saturday night. And it has
1: been the same ever since. I mean, how do people today feel about that?
2: So this uh, arrangement is <laughs> is literally called in Israel the status quo over the years, religious parties, even though they represent a minority of of Israel's population, have had a pivotal role in most of the coalitions and literally can bring down the government. This is one of the things they've insisted upon. However, 71 percent of Israelis, according to a recent poll, are in favor of public transport seven days a week. So while the national government has kept this ban on public transport in effect, many local councils where the majority of residents are secular. They've been grumbling and trying over recent years to try and launch some kind of local schemes of, of, of public transport. And in the last two months, because of the national government being an interim government, because Israel has now had two failed elections in which uh, Binyamin and has, has failed to form a coalition, the government doesn't have as much power as it usually has over the local councils. And this has given them the opportunity the municipality of Tel Aviv and other nearby towns around the Tel Aviv urban area have finally launched for the first time a full public transport system, which works also on Shabbat, on on the day of rest. And the religious politicians don't have the power to stop this now.
1: So th- this question of public transport is, one way or another, actually quite a political one. I mean, does it have the force to, to have any influence on upcoming elections?
2: So... Many of the parties currently running in the election, Israel will be holding its third consecutive election on March the 2nd, have made this an issue. So the religious parties are making a big deal out of fighting for the character of Shabbat in the public sphere and promising to their voters that they will demand that there will be no desecration of the Shabbat on, on, on Israel's roads, no buses will run. And at the same time, many of the centrists and left-wing parties are saying that they will make this one of their demands in a new government, that any local council which will have a clear majority in favor of public transport will be able to proceed and do so. So do you think that, that
1: as a, as a as an election platform issue it it will actually sway voters' minds? Is this is this is this the linchpin of the coming election?
2: Until the last year, Netanyahu has had a majority for his religious and right wing coalition. It's a group of of different parties. But the fact that there are now voters who are beginning to think that perhaps the issues of state and religion may be more important or or more urgent right now for them than the regular right-left divide in Israel. And if that sway, that could sway enough parties, enough voters away from Netanyahu and perhaps even cost his government. Uh, Taking the bus on Saturday may not seem like such a huge issue, but in a very, very close election, if that, even if that sways just a few voters, that could change the result of the election.
1: Anshul, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me, Jason.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you back here tomorrow.
4: Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh.